This episode of Pub Talk Live was broadcast on November 9th, 2019, with guest co-hosts Erica Cameron and special guest Dahlia Adler. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the November 9th episode of Pub Talk Live, the live publishing talk show airing the second and fourth Saturday of every month at 9 p.m. Eastern. I am your host, Sarah Nicholas. I'm a young adult author, the current managing director of Pitch Wars, and a library event planner. Um, Just so you know, you can subscribe to reminders about Pub Talk Live via email by clicking on the link in the description so you don't miss a show. Uh, you can also follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Pub Talk Live. And finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can find a link to the Patreon near the end of the video description down below. Now I am going to introduce today's guest host, Erica Cameron. Erica is the author of several series for young adults, including the Ryogen Chronicles, which was a junior library guild selection, the Assassin's Duology, which was the winner of the Buy Book Awards in 2016. She's an advocate for asexuality and emotional abuse awareness. Her latest book, Pax Novus, just came out on Monday the 4th, and it's the first of a new science fiction series. So everyone, please welcome to the show, Erica Cameron. Hi. Hey. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Yeah, thanks so much for um, coming on, and congrats on the new book release. Thank you. Definitely exciting times. I've been working on this one for several years now, so it's kind of unreal that it is out at last. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. <laughs> um, I am checking to see if we have any comments to start out with. It does not look like we have any yet. Um, so we do have our viewer poll, uh, and the question for this episode is what do you most often listen to when you write? And I'm gonna pull this up right here so you can see the question. I'm also gonna put a link to the poll itself in the comments. And I'm having a little bit trouble with my mouse pad today. So if I'm a little slow trying to get this copy, that's why. Uh, There we go. Yay for keyboard shortcuts. And I'm going to drop that in the comments of the YouTube show. So if you're watching on Twitter um, or on Facebook, you have to click through YouTube to see the live chat that we have going on. And um, yeah, so you can find it there. Okay, so um, and we will discuss the results of that at the end of the show. Um, It ends that poll ends at 930. So make sure you get your your vote in before 930. All right, so we're going to jump right into news, right, Erica? Yep, absolutely. All right, so uh, follow-up to the Audible captions legal battle we've been talking about for the past month or so. Um, The publishers have now made a proposal to Audible after a spokesperson said Audible's proposal, which we discussed on the last episode, did not moot the lawsuit as Audible had proclaimed two and a half weeks ago. Uh, Now, neither side has revealed the contents of these proposals, so we have no idea what they're um, discussing. But hopefully we'll see another update in a week or so. I'm definitely intrigued by this one. I want to see where it ends up. 
Yeah, for those who um, didn't haven't heard before, um, this is a, a battle about Audible deciding that they were going to provide captions for audiobooks, which is basically like producing an ebook from the audiobook. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, there's so many legal loopholes in that one that it'll, yeah, I have no idea where this one will end up, but I'm interested to see where the final decision involves. Yeah, I think the only people are going to win this is the lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of legal fees. Yeah. <laughs> so there, obviously, it's National Novel Writing Month, which everybody is pretty aware of by now, if you live on Twitter at all. But there is also apparently National Novel Generation Month, and it's more geared for programmers. So NanoGenmo is a challenge for coders to build programs that basically write novels, 50,000 words. Um, and at first, I was a little bit more intrigued than I ended up being, because apparently it is literally just any 50,000 words. Like, it can be... <laughs> apparently meow written 50,000 times and that counts. And I wish that that counted. Like, I don't think I can know <laughs> that. <laughs> like, it doesn't count for us, no. It does not count for me. So um, it's interesting. I think that it's the start of a technology driven start create content creation, which could be both good and bad for human content creators. Yeah, that, well, that's kind of why I was interested in it is um, people are saying that in about 20 years, you know, AI are going to be writing books. And um, yeah. I, are they going to be good? <laughs> is my question. They are they well, going to? It depends on how good the AI gets, because if they're what they're doing is studying historical bestsellers, pulling plot points, character types, and plot lines, and mashing them all together, then we're going to get a lot of recycled tropes, which is not necessarily bad, but isn't new. And so, but if it's true AI, and they can read and learn from past books, then maybe. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, either way, not good for the humans that would actually have to be paid to content create, whether it is trope driven or new. Yeah. So I wonder, I mean, do they think that AI is going to replace like human writers in the future? I bet you someone does. <laughs> <laughs> someone is like, well, if we can do that, then what do we need them for? We can streamline this whole process. Oh, uh, yeah. Yes, someone someone is thinking that right now. I will bet you. Oh, it'll be a sad day. It'll <laughs> be. <laughs> yeah. But hopefully uh, that won't come for several years. Yeah. Decades. Um, so uh, Jennifer says hello. Jennifer's been watching every episode since we started. So thank you. Um, she also said, I popped in late and can't find the poll. Um, so if you go to my Twitter, Jen, um, Sarah Nicholas, it'll be, um, there's a poll on there. It'll just be a couple of tweets back. And I also dropped a link in the YouTube chat comments. So if you can scroll up and see those, um, then you can find it. All right. Uh, where 
do we have going on next? Oh, so I don't know. You you probably saw this too, but a lot of people were talking about this article released by Publishers Weekly this week mm-hmm. um, asking if publishing has become too top heavy. Uh, they crunched the numbers and determined that sales of the 100 best-selling print books rose nearly 30% over a period of about two years, while the books that ranked between 101 and 10,000 saw their total print sales fall 16%, and books that ranked below 10,000 remained flat in that same period. Um, and so this led to a lot of discussion. I saw a lot of um, Twitter conversations about it, about the existence and the health of what we usually call the mid-list. Yeah, and you know, I until earlier this year, I worked with Barnes & Noble, and so it's like I've seen it on the bookseller end where the front spaces are entirely bought up by those big names. And if you're, if you're not a debut or a already New York times bestselling author, you're not getting one of those spots. And so, yeah, there's definitely a heavy handed push of the people that don't require the heavy handed push. I mean, Stephen King does not need to take up the 10 spaces in the front of the store. All you need to do is just let people know that Stephen King's got a new book. They'll come ask for it. (laughs) But uh, that does, that's the way that the commercial bookstores at least operate. Um, So yeah, I can definitely say I've seen that. I've definitely seen chatter about the last couple of years, but it's um, to see these numbers and to see, you know, that those books have, have kind of increased in sales while the other books have decrease in sales. That's pretty, I mean, it's kind of scary for someone who's considered a mid-list or barely a mid-list author. (laughs) I don't even know if I can call myself mid-list. I know, like lower (laughs) mid-list. Yeah, like, is this a, I don't know, where do you, what's the, yeah, what's the other terminology? Because I'm probably that. Um, But it's, no, it's definitely true. And even years ago when I got into publishing, there was that knowledge and awareness that as an author, you're going to have to do a lot of your own marketing. But even then it was still kind of seen as a partnership. And I feel like that partnership side has disappeared in a lot of ways. Um, And for those like me who are really not any good at the marketing and business side of publishing, it gets to be a real struggle. And it's, it is, it's exhausting. Um, And also expensive. Like I can't afford it. Like I just sending out books for the promotion for packs, like put me on financial edge. It was not pretty. So, um, you know, to be expected to take up the burden of promotion when we're not even usually paid enough for the book to make that our jobs in the first place is yeah unnecessary burden and i know it's tough on the other side i know people who work in in marketing and publicity and publishers are like overworked and Mm -hmm. underpaid and not they don't have enough resources so it's just i don't i don't know how to fix it (laughs) someone smarter than me is gonna have to figure that out (laughs) yeah i i've always hoped that they would stabilize payments for books and be like, you know, books, you get paid between 30 and $60,000 for a book. And then all of that excess money where they're not no longer paying those ridiculous $750,000 deals, like the enticement to sign with one publisher over another is the marketing package. Like how much are we going to put into your marketing? And they could use all of that money for marketing 
and all of a sudden a lot more authors would be able to actually survive on publishing but yeah. I don't know how realistic that economic plan is because economics was never exactly my forte. <laughs> um, Ebony said, joined us and she says, hi, Ebony's also been watching since the beginning. So thank you so much for joining us again. All right, Erica, you Hi, have some more sad news for us. I know, I heard this and this was heartbreaking. Bustle has laid off 10 staff members, including senior books editor, Christina Ariella. I'm sorry if I said that wrong. Um, and associate entertainment editor, um, Mallory Cara. And this could potentially be horrible news because what are they going to do with book coverage? Are they going to drop it? Are they going to lessen it? Is it going to be handed off to somebody else? Um, and so there's a lot of questions now around what will happen with what was a very vibrant book community surrounded around the bustle entertainment era. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, we're kind of waiting to see what they mean when they say they're hiring marquee people. I don't, I don't know even how to interpret that or what that means um, in this context. Yeah, and um, we there are just so few like media places where books are covered. To see one um, possibly get gutted is like really. Uh, I, I hate that uh, it's like a death knell, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but like, it's not. I mean, book publishing is not going anywhere, but it's just it makes it a little bit harder. Kendra said that broke my heart. Such a sucky time to be laid off too. Yeah. Right. Um, like those, there's, those journalists. And there's so few places, like you just said, that cover this. So it's like trying to get another job as a senior book editor. I mean, that's, that's going to be rough. Yeah. You know, well, hopefully day. they find somewhere else where they can promote great books. Yes. I'm crossing my fingers for everybody who is stuck in that situation. Good luck. Yeah. I hope you hope you find it. Um, my agent is specifically asking for you to e email him yeah, with book yeah. ideas if you have any of your own. So, you know, Eric Smith, look him up. Because <laughs> that was that was something that made me laugh. He, he specifically put out a call. If you've got, if you've had one of the bustle cuts and you've got a book idea, email him. I saw that. <laughs> um, just so for anyone who's watching who wants more information about some of the things we're talking about, I am going to add links um, in the description after the episode has ended so you can read more about each of the different issues. Um, so the director of the library in Leander, Texas, just outside of Austin, is leaving after 12 years in her position due to a family pride story time event. Hmm. And I know this has been a contentious thing for libraries over the past couple of years, but this wasn't their first attempt. In May, they scheduled a drag queen story time and it was canceled due to protests. And then in June, Open Cathedral Church rented a room to host a family pride festival um, at which protesters outnumbered attendees and they had to bring in police to control the crowds. And so in August, the city council voted to end library room rentals so that no one could rent a room again and to host an event like this. Uh, and then in July, transgender author Lila Sturges was asked not to present just two hours before her scheduled event. Um, and then the library made a second attempt to host a Pride Story in Pride Story Time in October 12th, 
which is what prompted the director's separation from the library. The mayor called it insubordination because I guess the city council had told them not to do this and, and the library decided to anyway. Oh. Yeah, um, where do we start with that? I don't... I know like I've seen a lot of stories in the past like two years um, about libraries trying to host events like this and people showing up in open carry states with like guns on their hips and um, just like really kind of terrorizing people just for wanting to have a, um, a drag queen story time or something. I know my library hosted one um, on the one year anniversary of the Pulse. Mm -hmm. um, and because I live in Orlando, so <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know, um, but it was like a special event and there was a lot of like extra considerations taken, a lot of precautions taken. Um, but I mean, it's, and then a lot of libraries host some of these events without any mm -hmm. issues, without any event, you know? And so it's just, um, it's really sad to see someone who was, in upper management of a library who was supportive of this event let go because they were supportive of these events. Yeah, it's a sign of how much work there's still to do on acceptance or tolerance at the very least. Um, because yeah, so much of the country, and I just love how they don't see the dichotomy between you're not allowed to host a story time. Like I want stories. I want to kill you. Like they don't see the dichotomy between those two things. Like, like they see those as equal, like you want this. And so I get to do that. I, I there was so like those sorts of mindsets, like there's really no reasoning with that. Yeah. Cause there's, there's no reason to what they're doing. Like there is no logic or framework that can be argued because they're already so far past that point. And so trying to figure out where to go from, from here is, is rough for everybody involved um, on the, on the ally side, on the queer side. <laughs> Cause yeah, I mean, if you're, actual life is on the line for wanting to host a story time, then we have some serious problems. Yeah. Um, so X10 said, this breaks my heart. Canceling story time with diverse voices is only harming the children. They're meant to educate and serve. That is so true. Jennifer said, what an amazingly horrible situation. Agreed. And then Ebony, I love this comment. People are so ignorant. Truth. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's, yeah. that's a true, true statement. All right, so I've got kind of like complicated story. Um, it's gonna take a little bit to like give you all the background involved with it. Um, so we all know about little free libraries, right? Mm -hmm. Most people know they're like the little wooden boxes that people put books in and people can take boxes for books. It's like a community book exchange. Um, so Todd Bull, I don't actually know how to say his last name. It's B-O-L. It should be easy, right? Bull. <laughs> I, I will we'll go with Bull. Okay. Founded the Little Free Library nonprofit in 2009 and unfortunately passed away last year. Now his family and the nonprofit he started are at odds with each other. His brother, Tony Bull, said the organization followed three separate new trademarks used in connection with the words wooden boxes with a storage area for books. 
and signs non-luminous and non-mechanical of metal <laughs> and <laughs> guest books and rubber stamps. Uh, this would mean that if any individual or neighborhood organization built and displayed any type of wooden book box, they could be subject to legal action, even if they called the container by another name. The Bull family filed a formal protest against the trademark application and is asking others to join them. The executive director of Little Free Libraries, Greg Metzger, said they don't condone for-profit businesses making money off the concept, which I understand but works with like-minded nonprofits all over the world, even helping those who don't want to register their boxes with the organization. He says they're not going to go out and sue individuals for putting up a box, even though the trademarks would technically allow them to. Now, the twist here in all of this is that Tony Bull started one of those for-profit businesses. It's called Share With Others, and it sells both book boxes and pantry boxes but they do have the intention of donating funds to nonprofits. He likened it to Newman's own. Yeah. This is a mess. Yeah, this is interesting. I, um, it really comes down to intentions because both sides have logical arguments. Um, and it was interesting too, because I, you know, I, I read the comments on this one and both sides actually like leave long comments on the article. Um, and they they reinforced the various positions. Um, you know, Tony basically wants to be allowed to make money off of this concept and sell boxes. Uh, and the other people don't want anybody to be able to do that. But they they I mean, they specifically give instructions on the website about how to make your own. So I'm not really sure where to fall on this one. Like if somebody. Yeah, I don't know. It seems like they want to be able to be in the position to sue someone if, if they're doing this yeah. to gain profit. Mm -hmm. um, but, but there's no, there's no like legal definition there. So they're basically just registering the trademark, you know, yeah. um, Kendra asked, Oh, it jumped a little bit. Kendra asked, how would they even find all the ones that weren't registered? Um, well, they're saying right now that they don't want to, that they don't care. That's not what they're really going after. I think they're really going after the companies. Yeah, that people like Tony. They're making money off of it. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm not sure. I, because like they're not really making money off of it. So I'm not really sure if it would be. It's not really a case of someone else like edging in on their their profits or their funds for the nonprofit. So. Yeah, I don't know. Because as long as no one's trying to stop people from making their own, like, I don't know. Yeah. But I think they do also sell the boxes. So if it might be that, like, they would prefer that people buy them directly from the Little Free Library Company, which in that case, yeah, I can I can see that because they're protecting their own source of funds for the nonprofit. Um, but if they take that trademark, then they have power to start going after everybody. And will they use that? Yeah. Sorry, my dog is, uh, I don't Very know, active wanting time. attention. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's, there's uh, my neighbors next door are, are having a little party mm -hmm. and you can hear them. So uh, I think it's making them nervous. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fine. My roommate's cat is, is that I saw it. <laughs> she decided to come hang out tonight. So <laughs> But she's much quieter than Jasper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
All right, so let's see, source books. They've announced that they're running the Indie Rapid Replenishment Program, which basically means fast replenishment for indie bookstores. Um, good for the holidays. I'm hoping that that means a lot of the good source books books will be in stock for Christmas shopping as it comes in, Hanukkah shopping, all of the different holidays that are coming up in the next couple of months because they are all packed into winter. Um, so yeah, that's good. I know that as a, when I worked for the bookstore, that was always nice when we were able to actually get things quickly when we ordered it. And I, I worked for a major bookstore. So I can imagine sometimes the wait and the hassle for getting it for independent stores is, is annoying. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, they did this last year and I guess it worked for them. And so they're, they're doing it again this year. And I know it requires a little more manpower for them, but I also, mm -hmm. um, I wonder what it would take for publishers like this to be able to do this year round. Cause I feel mm -hmm. like one of the, that would be a major advantage for them in the competition against Amazon, of course, True. cause you know, Amazon, like you order a book and it comes the next day. And so mm -hmm. if bookstores were able to compete with that, would that make a difference in the kind of like book selling culture that we have? Yeah. I'm not sure. Cause I know with the, Barnes and Noble membership, you get the free express shipping if you're a member or whatever. And it's not Amazon speed usually, but it is pretty quick. Uh, and I feel like either they don't do the right marketing for it or people just don't care. And they're like, eh, whatever, I had to order something else on Amazon anyway, might as well get the books there too, sort of mindset. Because um, yeah. even, yeah, even when I explained like, you know, that's express shipping, it's not overnight or anything, but you should get it in a couple of business days then it, you know, some people were still like, eh, Amazon, <laughs> uh, you know, even, even when they had both the prime membership and the Barnes and Noble one. So it wasn't a, a question of them spending extra money or anything like that. So yeah. it's, it's hard to, hard to say because Barnes and Noble kind of already has that in place and I'm not sure how well it's doing for them or not hmm. as far as actual numbers. Um, yeah. Well, also in distribution news, um, so Baker and Taylor announced earlier this year that it would discontinue its retail operations. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that caused a lot of uproar because that basically leaves yeah. one major distributor. Um, and a lot of publishers are trying to figure out how to get their books, especially into Western bookstores states, uh, in the Western states. Um, well, Penguin Random House has one solution. They have actually taken over Baker and Taylor's Reno warehouse in operation to distribute their own books. Um, they've discussed having a Western Fulfillment Center for years, and this was obviously the perfect opportunity for them to take over the operations. The um, picture of that place is insane. Yeah. I'm having a hard time actually physically imagining 244,000 square feet. Like I just can't <laughs> conceptualize yeah. that size. I don't know that I've ever been in a building that big, maybe like the Javits Convention Center. I don't know. Like I'm trying to scale it in my head and I can't. It's massive. Yeah. And it's only a quarter of the size of their um, Eastern warehouse. Too. So. <laughs> so many books. Can I go shopping in there? <laughs> <laughs> but again, that's just one one publisher. So I don't know. I still am not quite sure how the other publishers are are managing it. Yeah, and they did say that they're kind of, I don't know what they're, what they're doing with all of the inventory that was kind of already in there. If they're taking, I think they're taking over management until the inventory that was there was sort of moved 
like sold out, like yeah. not ordering anything in that's not Penguin and kind of like letting the rest of the stuff sell out, um, which is interesting because now Penguin would be a temporary distributor on the West Coast for like all of the major books and like, cool, I guess. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> um, so that'll be an interesting switch. Baker and Taylor's been a name for quite a while. Uh, another name, Macmillan. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're talking Macmillan. The CEO, John Sargent, penned an open letter to libraries upset about the ebook policy change. And I know that that's been a discussion recently. Um, he said specifically, I realize the lack of availability in the first eight weeks will frustrate some ebook patrons, and that will make your jobs more difficult. Your patrons would be happy if they could get any book they wanted instantly and seamlessly, but that would severely be debilitating for authors, publishers, and retailers. We are trying to find a middle ground. We are not trying to hurt libraries. We are trying to balance the needs of the system in a new and complex world. It's, yeah. It is a complex question. It is. And um, we'll post, I'll post the full text of the letter um, after the episode ends and you can check out all of it. Um, but it, it's, I mean, I don't know how to feel about it. Like I, Maybe Dahlia will have something to add whenever we get her on the screen. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it is complicated. And I, I don't know if the people who are getting the books from the library are going to then, if they can't get a hold of them, go out and buy them. I don't, I'm, I don't know if that's going to happen. I have a feeling it that they'll be, just go to other books that they can't get. Yeah, I think it'll be very case by case. It depends very much on... If, you know, if that's their favorite author and it's their last next book in a series or something, then yeah, maybe they'll go buy it. But if it's something they're trying out for the first time, then no. Um, yeah, I mean, as an, as an author, I like definitely want more people to be buying the books because then maybe I can buy groceries. Um, you know, but, but I, as a reader who is completely broke, like I totally understand, like I want as much legally free content as I can get because otherwise I don't, I miss out on a lot of content. And I don't know, it's, it's a tough question. Um, I get them wanting to subsidize their costs better. Um, they're not denying the eBooks to the library entirely. Uh, I just think the entire system is broken and we need to find some better solution because band-aids like this are only going to work for so long. Yeah. And he even admits in the letter that he may be completely wrong. So, I mean, that's, because that's all we can do yeah. Yeah. everyone's just guessing all the time in publishing. <laughs> Will this work? Maybe let's see. Um, yeah. I think that every, the whole industry is kind of still clinging very hard to the way things have always worked and it's not going to work for much longer because the entire technology is changing everything. And until technology breaks entirely, we're going to have to deal with those changes. Yeah. X10 said, I doubt patrons of the library go buy books if they can't get them at the library. Um, and Kendra said, as a kid, if it wasn't at the library, I wouldn't be able to read it. I feel like Amazon is bullying publishers. So publishers are bullying libraries. That's definitely a possible chain of events. Yeah. Um, and I know, like, I mean, I work at a library and I see daily and I, I feel like s there are some patrons who will buy a book if it's not available. 
um, mm -hmm. and, but they come to the library first. But most of them are just their entire reading life is the library. You know, they don't have the money yeah. to spend on books. So, yeah, like I know readers like my dad, you know, he libraries because he's so voracious that it would just be cost prohibitive to buy all of them. But yeah, if he can't buy, if he can't find something at the library and he wants to read it bad enough, he'll, he'll buy it. But um, there's definitely going to be a huge section of the library readership that, yeah, can't make that decision. Yeah. All right. Well, with that cheery note, <laughs> uh, we're going to bring on our special guest. Um, so Dahlia Adler is an associate editor of Mathematics by Day a blogger for Barnes & Noble Teens and LGBTQ Reads by Night, and an author of young adult and new adult books at every spare moment in between. Her novels include <laughs> her novels include the Daylight Falls duology, Just Visiting, the Radley University trilogy, and the upcoming Cool for the Summer, which is, I think, coming out in 2021. Yes, okay. She's the editor of the anthologies His Hideous Heart and That Way Madness Lies. So please welcome Dahlia to the show. Hello. Hey. I'm glad you could join us. Uh, me too. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so I just read like all the things that you do. <laughs> and it's a lot. <laughs> um, so your day job is in publishing and you're a writer and you're a book blogger and you edit anthologies. And I feel like there are probably other things that. <laughs> um, There's a lot of stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> how do yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, how do those roles like intersect with each other and, and maybe even conflict with each other? So, you know, on the one hand, it's really nice that I work in publishing by day, but that it's a different kind of publishing. So the work that I do as a math editor doesn't come home with me, which is a big deal. Um, because I think that if I had worked in trade publishing, like I originally did, my first job was at Simon & Schuster. Um, and then I moved out of New York City for a little while, and we all know what publishing is like outside of there. So by the time I came back, my resume was very academic. Um, I don't think I would have been able to go on and also write books. So I appreciate that about it. But at the same time, it still has me working in contracts, working with authors, dealing with payments, like a lot of things that keep my brain sort of fresh on where it should be in terms of how publishing things work. So I like that about how my job intersects with everything else. Um, one thing that's getting exhausting is I travel for that job and I travel as an author <laughs> and that because now I have a toddler, especially is like uh, a little draining, Absolutely, <laughs> just God. even just figuring out the childcare for that has, has been a lot. Um, the book blogging also has its pluses and minuses for sure. I love being able to promote books. I love being able to support books. I love getting books in advance. I love knowing what's coming up. I love meeting other authors that way. All that's been awesome. Um, but I went through a big stretch in my career where I wasn't producing that much. And like initially I was, you know, with small press and then I was kind of just doing short stories. Um, and it took me some time to kind of, um, I'm in phase two, <laughs> my friend, um, the author Chase Verity referred to it as the Dolisance. <laughs> I, I love it. with flat iron and novels with Wednesday. And I'm like so excited about it, but it really does feel like a phase two in my career. Um, but there was a while where it really grated on me. Um, 
it's very hard to constantly talk about other people's books and have no one care about yours. <laughs> that is very tough. Um, and you know, there's sometimes where you get so much joy out of talking about other people's books, it doesn't really matter. And sometimes where it just beats you down. Um, and you know, I think both intentionally and unintentionally, you kind of get used a lot as people see what you can do for them, but don't either tell themselves they don't have anything to give back to you or whatever. It's all a lot. You can always <laughs> boost other people in one way or another, even if it's just like a retweet. Um, but there was a lot of that. And that was a very hard thing for me to handle for a while. So there are times I was like, not loving that I was a blogger and feeling like I was constantly just here for other people. So now I like how that part is balanced a little more, but uh, the workload is <laughs> intense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I never really anticipated doing all of this at once and we'll see how long I can. <laughs> yeah. Um, do, like, besides the travel, do you ever find yourself just like overwhelmed by publishing and just like, I'm just going to go be a barista or something? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think every job can get overwhelming. Like at least now I'm not dealing with a billion miserable customers every day. So there's ways in which I think being a barista would eventually beat me down too. So I think you kind sure. of can get burned out at anything, no matter how much you love it. There's something about it that is just going to destroy you. <laughs> so, you know, there's times yeah. it's better and there's there's times it's worse. Right now it's just busy. I happen to have, you know, two books due in December. So that's just going to, and that's when I do my preview posts for Barnes & Noble and LGBTQ Reads happens to be kind of booming right now, especially as you were talking about other sites Uh kind of unfortunately disappear, discontinue or lessen their book coverage, it becomes more and more necessary to be there for authors who have so few places to choose from. Because like, you know, Bustle really was amazing, mm -hmm. not just in, you know, how well they covered books, but that they covered a lot of mid-list titles. I know yeah. for Christina Ariola, it was very important to cover like, um, books by women of color, like mm -hmm. they were filling a really, really great need in publishing and doing it with a really big audience. Um, and it's going to be very, very hard to fill that gap. So whatever I can be there for, awesome. But there's also stuff I can't. And I just, ah, I hope somebody <laughs> snaps her up immediately, but there just aren't that many spaces that even can, as you were saying. And that's, mm -hmm. that's a really tough thing about book blogging right now. So it also makes me feel like even if I want a break, now is just not the time till something else kind of gets on its feet, you know? Mm. So very thankful yeah. for any donations that help me hire assistants, <laughs> basically. I mean, thankfully yeah. I have a Patreon and I people, you know, donate to the coffee thing and yeah. yeah. <laughs> got some help. But um I mean, you can get burnt out on anything, but I am definitely in a burnout stage right now. Uh -huh. yeah. Well, the um, the link for the site is in the description. So if you want to check it out, uh, yeah, go ahead and click on that. And then one final question on on that front is um, because I want to know personally, how do you find the time for all of it? <laughs> I, I don't know, man. <laughs> I definitely do some work during other work. <laughs> Nobody from my office is watching this, right? Hopefully not. Um, so there's that. There's, you know, just the way my brain works for certain things makes some things go much faster than they otherwise would. So for example, like 
I used to have a very good memory for birthdays. Now my memory for birthdays is terrible, but my memory for pub dates is excellent. <laughs> so if I'm doing even like this tremendously huge post on books of, and my, you know, memory for books in general, just the, the basic details, um, any smaller details, my mind is a sieve, but, um, you know, so to do a post of like 10 books about this, at least to come up with titles, which is all I do for some posts in, in LGBTQ reads, doesn't take me very long because my mm -hmm. brain really stores that, um, which is part of it. I mean, I think you can't understate that like some people's brains are just kind of suited in a way that makes a certain job a little easier. Mm -hmm. um, and then yeah. otherwise having I a smartphone is great. <laughs> <laughs> like WordPress app and Wix app and Twitter and just whatever I can do on my phone. Um, I commute an hour and a half each way every day not every day sorry three days a week now um it was four until very recently so whatever i can do on my commute i do um and then i just have to like really guard my sundays for writing stuff or dealing with like anthology contracts or whatever trying to do a little of that at nights too um thankfully my in-laws are wonderful babysitters um for sunday afternoon sunday morning sunday afternoon and that's another thing just like partnership. I know it gets annoying to hear, but if you have a partner, having a good partner is kind of mm -hmm. really key in having the time to do things. And uh, that's it. Work fast, work <laughs> everywhere and sleep very little. <laughs> hmm. Unfortunately, Jasper is not a very good work partner. So. That is not helpful. Jasper, no. come He on. doesn't even do dishes. Like, Oh my God, come no. on. <laughs> Yeah, I also, I just like, it's funny because people are like, oh, how do you balance work and keeping a house? I'm like, I don't clean. I don't clean <laughs> anything. And I take no time with my, like, there are things you have to give up for other things. So mm -hmm. I don't act like, and it's not giving up. These are things that in, are not in my nature to care that much about. I don't ever do my hair. I don't ever go to the gym. I don't shower that much. I don't clean my house. I like it's I, okay. I'm a little gross. <laughs> Being a little gross kind of enables me to be somebody who has a little more time for these things. So when people think about what time is in the day, they're often factoring things into what they have to do that I don't care about. So, you know, I, I just like, I can't, I, I don't have the luxury of caring what I look like anymore. I'm over it. I just can't do it. I put on lip gloss for this. You're welcome. <laughs> fair, more than fair. Yeah. So, I, yeah. Ever since I got my robotic vacuum, I like, I'm just in love with it. Like I just, I turn it on and then like, go sit on the couch. My parents bought it for me. Um, so I was just super lucky. That's amazing. Yeah. I like, it's one of those things where I'm like one day I'm just going to pull the trigger and do it. But like, while I shop a lot and I recognize that things add up to that dollar amount, I have a very hard time pulling the trigger on yeah. dollar amounts mm -hmm. for anything. Yeah. Me yeah. too. Yeah. So going back to LGBTQ reads, um, yes. it's been a while since the actual inception of the site. And I remember Which back. Which is pretty wild. I know, right? Like I was thinking about it. I'm like, wow, no, that's that's been a while. It's coming um, up on four years. I know. So talk about a little what inspired you to start it. Because back then there were a few more options than there are now as far as, you know, book blogs and publications that really cover. But well, what inspired you to start the site? 
and take so on there that definitely task. were um for me the big inspirations at the time what's now ya pride was gay ya and they were mm-hmm. still pretty active so it wasn't born so much from feeling a need for ya even though that's the thing i focus on the most because i know it the best it was mm-hmm. that was the year that my first queer new adult novel came out um and i was also reading a lot of it and i was like i really want to talk about these kinds of books um, and romance novels. And at the same time, I think that's when middle grade kind of just started doing mm-hmm. more than maybe one a year. Yeah. So I was looking at books on both sides of YA and being like, well, who's kind of taking care of these? There were a, there were a lot more, even MM romance sites have really um, gone away since then. But mm-hmm. at the time there were a lot of MM romance sites and nothing else. And I was like, well, I want to focus on other areas under the queer umbrella. And I want to focus on younger than what gay YA is doing and older than what gay YA is doing. Um, And that was the big impetus. Then a bunch of places either went on hiatus, went away, whatever. Um, And I was already doing a lot of blogging about queer YA for Barnes and Noble because I do the Mm -hmm. preview posts every year, um, twice a year, talking about what's coming up in the next six months. And then that, um, that really kept me in the know for pretty much everything that was going on in queer YA. So I feel bad that that sort of dominated the coverage of LGBTQ reads when it was intended specifically not to be (laughs) like YA centric, but I work so much in the area of queer YA. But um, I also do in queer middle grade now, I do those preview posts for Barnes Mm -hmm. Noble kids now that there are um, more than four, I think is what I need to have as like the minimum in order to be able to do a post for the site. Mm-hmm. And now that there's more than four every six months, um, I now do that for them for middle grade too. Which is amazing um, just that there is that many. I'm it's so amazing. Happy. Um, 2020 is going to be like banner year for queer oh. middle grade. I think it's going to total, looking at like 15 right now, Fantastic. Um, which like shatters previous years. So that's really mm-hmm. cool. Um, and then there have risen more um, like specialized sites in Queerlit that are amazing, like the Arrow Ace database by mm-hmm. Claudia Arsenio. A thousand percent butchering that name. I'm so sorry. Um, but if you go to at Arrow Ace DB, it's the most incredible thing. Um, she's the author of, of a bunch of Ace books and Arrow books, mm-hmm. um, Baker Thief and City of Strife and, um, and made this amazing database. Um, and then there are some trans book sites and there's the Lesbian Review. Um, and yeah, so there's some amazing resources, um, but still kind of nobody's doing all encompassing queer lit mm-hmm. um, and literary fiction and historical fiction and specifically sci-fi fantasy. Well, you know what? Sci-fi fantasy actually also has a few sites. I don't know what's the working, what's not. So I don't want to give mm-hmm. shout outs because those <laughs> seem to keep popping up, disappearing, popping up, disappearing. Um, but I still haven't found another site that really does the same kind of thing. And especially for adult fiction. So I really try to stay on top of it, but it is hard. It is um, hard. Michelle Hart, who works for O Magazine is kind of amazing at it. Um, and I just look at whatever like books she's posting about and I'm like, okay, I got to make sure I then I'll, <laughs> like scour and find information about it and figure out mm-hmm. if it's queer or cause she'll also cover if it just has a queer author, um, mm-hmm. which is great, but it's, you know, for LGBT curious, mm-hmm. I stick to things that have queer main characters. Um, so they require a little research, but, 
yeah, I just, there's still not really sites doing the same kind of thing. So it really inspires me to keep working on the stuff that it's really difficult to find elsewhere. Um, well, good. That's, 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 that's actually we, everything now. <laughs> how can so. we best support you in doing that? So authors and other members of the community, like what are the best ways besides straight up donation that we can support your efforts to be amazing. <laughs> um, sharing the posts is amazing. Um, clicking on the, I just started having advertising. So clicking mm -hmm. on the ads, if you can get your publisher to do a giveaway through the site, um, that's cool. Um, I did, you know, Goodreads started charging for giveaways. I'm like, okay, so what if I did the same thing, but for a lot less, I don't know. I haven't done any of that yet, but I'm just trying to think yeah. of different ways to do it mm -hmm. that maybe publishers can kick in. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to authors having to do it. So I'm trying to yeah. give some more options in that regard because I've had publishers want to place ads and I was like, no, no, don't want to do that. Now I'm like, no, no, I got to make the site sustain itself somehow um, mm -hmm. because it's really just a ton of work. And a lot of it is like publishers telling authors, oh, we're revealing your cover tomorrow. Like if you want to find a place to reveal. And like for authors, they want to do a cover reveal. It's a yeah. big deal. So it's a lot of like last minute work. Um, so I just really, anything people can share, um, retweeting posts or reblogging posts would be huge. Um, and if you, if you are at a traditional publisher, get them to use the site, you know, mm -hmm. financially in some way would be great. And then yes, obviously Patreon donations, all that's great, but really just engaging with it is a lot. Um, because that's you know, awesome. stats matter as you're making advertising prices mm -hmm. and things like that. So and then also like the whole point <laughs> is for it to be a site people know about, um, for it to be a widespread resource. It's on a lot of like library sites. I want librarians to know about it and use it as a resource. I want schools. I want kids who don't have another way to find this stuff out. Like I just want people to know about it. Um, so anything you can do to spread the word is honestly awesome. All right. Will do. <laughs> Beth said, what a great project. Also, Bess is asking if anyone else names their robotic vacuum. <laughs> if I had one, I probably would. <laughs> I definitely would. All right, so you kind of talked about this a little bit, um, but your Twitter bio includes the phrase wrecking ball. <laughs> um, thanks to your reputation, providing great book recommendations. I know I've sought you out before when I needed specific requests. Yeah. Um, but so my question, you talked a little bit about this before, but maybe if there's something else, how, <laughs> how, how do you always know the perfect book to recommend? So I, you know, I feel like people just don't always look at the right angle when they're recommending books. Like you can't just be like, oh yeah, you want a book. I will tell you one I love. Cause it's not about what book you as the recommender love. If you know what else they love, you can pick up certain things. You know, like sometimes there's a trend of what people really love is found family, but they don't know how to phrase that. So when you hear other books that people like, sometimes you can pick up the elements that they're really loving about it. So when I do this Patreon, for example, the $25 tier is I have a discussion with you every month to help pick out the perfect queer book for you. And as people get, you know, more accustomed to chatting with me about finding their books, I think... I figure out in what excites them, what they're really looking for. I mean, and sometimes it's pretty basic. They just want, you know, a sexual rep and they don't care where they're finding it. Like, it's just like, but then you're like, no, no, there are ace books. You can be more specific. And then they're like, well, I guess I would love it in space. And I'm like, Tarsh, they're the stars. Go run. Like that is what I promise. <laughs> um, so I, it exists in more than one, but um, 
So it's really after a while you you learn what people are into and what aspects of books they're into. And that's what you really appeal to or what authors they like in general. You know, I have like groups where I think like if you like Corianne Haydu, you're going to like Katie Katugno and you're going to like Rachel Allen and you're like and I, mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of a chain. Um, but yeah, it depends on the person, but usually you can figure out things about a person, what they're looking for in a book or at least. I feel like I can't. So I don't know if that's so helpful, but no, I situation can specific. When I was were no, when I was working bookseller, that was the same thing. Like people were like, Oh, what do you recommend? Well, what are you looking for? What was the last thing that you really loved that you got pulled through? Like that was I would always start the conversation there. And that's Yeah, that's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I have to walk with you guys a little because my phone is dying. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. And we'll try not so well. to <laughs> try not to get motion sick. Here are my bookshelves. <laughs> They're gorgeous bookshelves. I saw the oh, picture wow. you posted. I know, right? Like I saw the picture she Goodness. posted back on Twitter a while back and I was like, oh, those shelves. <laughs> Immediate self-ending. My house is a mess. Yeah. <laughs> so Sorry. let's see. Go on to Next, turn. <laughs> we'll just distract people with other questions. So you, um, you and I actually were both in this situation a while back where we had to query agents as previously published authors. Um, and but for you specifically, like you are friendly with a lot of agents from your work in various arenas. Uh, can you tell oh, yeah, us a little bit about how that how that experience was for you and like how any advice you have for people who might be in the same situation? Give me one second. Yep, you're, <laughs> you're good. good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Now I'm very dark, but. Oh, it's not too bad. Nope, we can still see you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's um, super uncomfortable. <laughs> and it feels really weird when you're friends with people. I, you know, I remember when I used to query and I was like kind of just becoming friends with agents to the point where I was like struggling really hard with, do I say dear Ms. or dear Jen or whatever? Mm -hmm. So this time around that's gone. I'm like, how strange would it be to say dear Ms.? Um, <laughs> but you don't want to let anybody down and you don't want to make anybody feel bad and... Mm -hmm. It's funny because they're feeling the same thing with you. Like they're going to reject you if they don't like your book. Mm -hmm. um, but this time around happened to be a very successful querying trip. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I different agents and that was weird and uncomfortable and <laughs> kind of terrible. Um, but um, God, I like, I don't even know good ways to talk about handling it. I mean, you have to be professional and you have to remember that they're professionals too and they're used to this. And mm -hmm. I didn't really want an agent that I was good friends with because you kind of have to be able to, I say get mad as shorthand, but mm -hmm. like if you have things you need to get done, if you are upset about something, like you have to be able to deal with those feelings and you have to be able to talk about them. And it can't be somebody that you're afraid of, like hurting their I feelings. Like you're not you're afraid of hurting because you should be afraid of yeah. hurting anybody. But like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You don't want somebody that you can't talk to about what's really going on and what you're thinking because communication with an agent is so, so important. Um, and that's just a lousy spot to be in. And I really didn't want to be in that spot. So, um, that part was tricky, but at the same time, I was like, I was really trying to avoid querying friends. And then I was like, you know what? There are just not that many amazing agents in the business anymore. 
Um, and I kind of felt like I had no choice. So I think you really have to consider all the things that are going to be best for your career in terms mm -hmm. of who are you comfortable having the difficult conversations with, but also really believe in and also really trust mm -hmm. um, who isn't going to be take advantage of you and be lazy because they feel like, okay, but she's Dahlia. Like, it's fine. She'll understand if I'm whatever, because I won't, mm -hmm. I won't understand. I'm a hard <laughs> ass. I actually really won't. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's all those sorts of things to take into account. Um, and one big thing when you're going in querying mid career entirely, it's like some weird glare off my glasses is, um, it's not weird. <laughs> like, I, no. I know I keep saying this, but like, there's nothing, you're not a failure. It's not strange. Everybody pretty much has done it. I know almost mm -hmm. nobody who's still on their first agent. This year in particular has been a real mid-career querying yeah. year um, for various reasons. No, I can't reasons. think of anybody either that is on yeah. their first. The person I used to think of as like that person isn't even anymore. So <laughs> Yeah, no, I... So, um, yeah, it's just normal and it's not a failure on the part of an agent necessarily. And it's not, mm -hmm. I mean, I think if you're bleeding clients as an agent, then that's something that you really have to think about. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's, you know, considerably rarer. And a lot of times it's just what clients want change. And mm -hmm. I think also one thing that's, that's happened lately is just the YA market really confuses people right now. Mm -hmm. And a lot of agents don't really want you to focus on it. And a lot of authors are trying to figure out how to diversify, but then agents have to also cover everything you want to do. And that's a really big thing. Talk mm -hmm. to agents about, like, I, I knew I wanted to do adults. So there are some agents I didn't bother querying because, like, their agencies don't do it. Mm -hmm. um, but talk to them about your options for if you want to do something that isn't their usual. Some of them want to learn. Some of them have another agent at the agency who can do it. And mm -hmm. you have to decide how you feel about that. Um, and, and, you know, their reactions will tell you a lot about how they're going to handle that situation. But I think that's why it's gotten kind of complicated for a lot of people is that there's more of a feeling of needing to be able to diversify now than there's ever been mm -hmm. for YA authors. Um, and you got to find the agents who can roll with that. And I think some agents are learning that they have to roll with that a little more than they initially wanted to also. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it's a complicated time and you just have to remember that everybody does it. And especially when you're querying friends, it's just going to be painful and awkward and it's going to suck. And then you're going to sign with somebody and by a week later, it's not going to suck anymore. Like <laughs> Every, everything will the be agents normal. you rejected will move on and you will move on. And the agents who rejected you won't feel like, you know, whatever. Everything gets better. I promise. It's just really <laughs> bad while you're in it for everybody. Yeah. I mean, just this week, I'm like counseling two friends through it, three mm -hmm. friends through it. Yeah. <laughs> everybody <laughs> all been published before. Mm -hmm. um, and it just, and everyone's like, this feels so bad. Or I feel like I failed. Or I don't know how to choose this person who's a friend. I'm like, pros and cons the basics, you know, and I said to somebody, it sounds like your problem here is only like the, the pro for this agent is that they're your friend and the pro for the other agent is everything else. So <laughs> this isn't the decision. You know, yeah. It gets complicated. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of people in that boat and it's really worth remembering. There's a lot of people in that boat. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, I hope it's helpful to people. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, No, that's basically yeah. why. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you've been assembling and editing some like interesting anthologies lately. You have two that I can think of. Yes. Um, so That's can you it. talk a little <laughs> bit about the process? Like how do you choose the authors to contribute and how are the anthologies sold? That kind of thing. 
Sure. So His Hideous Heart was sort of an interesting assembly of authors because that half happened on Twitter. Um, I had posed the question to Twitter if, um, if you had to, like, if you could pair an author to retell any story, what would it be? And this teacher named Jacqueline said, I would do um, an Edgar Allan Poe anthology with, and she named some authors. And I was like, I would love that with, and I named two authors. And I happened to have tagged them. And they replied, I would do that. I would do that. And then some other great authors were like, I would be into that. I'd be into that. So I jumped off Twitter. Um, and then I went to the rest of my like favorite horror and thriller and dark fantasy, et cetera, authors. Um, and that's how... And then I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to do like a poem in the middle. So, I mean, for poetry, Amanda Lovelace was kind of the obvious like place to go. So I was very lucky she turned out to be a Poe fan. Um, and that is how His Hideous Heart came about. So once I had the authors on board, um, I actually didn't have an agent. So I had to query agents first. Well, no, sorry. First, I had to put together a proposal. Um, and you can find that proposal pretty much in full. Um, on my blog, which is dailydelia.wordpress.com. It has a post called, So You Want to Edit an Anthology? And I got asked to share my proposal so often that I finally just posted it there. Um, and when I say almost in full, all it's lacking is like all the author bios, but it has mine mm -hmm. even, so you can see an example. Um, and that was um, put together with the help of some friends who've done anthologies before. So Sandra Mitchell, who did All Out, and Jess Spotswood, who did Tyranny of Petticoats and Radical yeah. Elements and Twilight and Trouble, and Marika Nykamp, who did um, Unbroken, all kind of like sent me proposals or contributor agreements, whatever, and that's how I put that together. And Catherine Locke, who did uh, It's a Whole Spiel, also helped talk me through some stuff, which was really, really helpful. So I put together proposals, I queried agents, I ended up with Victoria Marini, and we agreed to do just the anthologies together, or anthology, it was singular at that point. Um, and then Sarah Barley at Flatiron, thankfully, loved it. Um, and that's how that signed on. And then I was talking to her and I was like, I really love working with you. I really want to keep doing this again. Um, and she was into that too. I was like, I have an idea for another one. And I, I listed all these authors. So that was a little bit of a different process because I was choosing the authors from the beginning. And then on the flip side, I also didn't have to write a proposal. Like mm -hmm. once she heard the author, she was like, okay, <laughs> and she already worked with me. Done. The concept was already laid out because it's going to be just like his hideous heart. So for how I chose the authors for Shakespeare, I wanted to do, um, there were a few things I took into account. So I wanted some authors who had um, done Shakespeare before, you know, I already saw how they reimagined Shakespeare and I loved it. So that's like Lily Anderson, for example, mm -hmm. who did the only thing worse than me is you. Um, and then there were some authors who I really loved what they did with retelling in general. Um, so like E.B. Zaboy, who did Pride, a retelling of Pride and Prejudice, and that was a very cool version. Um, but then also one thing that I really loved about how His Hideous Heart came out is that with zero instruction, everybody kind of did characters from the margins as main characters. Mm -hmm. And I really loved that because Poe really didn't do that. So instead of all these white men doing whatever, um... Almost every protagonist was female in his hideous heart, except for one who was a black boy. Um, so everything got, you know, sort of new voice, new gaze, new angle. And I really want that for Shakespeare too. So I chose some of those authors by um, gazes I thought Shakespeare needed mm -hmm. and perspectives I thought Shakespeare really needed. So for example, there's a lot of cross-dressing stories in Shakespeare, but they're not trans stories. So I was like, well, 
<laughs> Let's get <laughs> ourselves some trans non-binary <laughs> authors here. So Austin Chance, who, and that also was the retelling came in, Austin retold um, Peter Pan with Peter Darling. Um, this will be his first YA, so that's exciting. Um, and Amy Rose Capetta and Corey McCarthy also doing super queer, Anna Marie McLemore. So I, I knew I wanted super queer. Um, and then some people, I just love how they write kind of adventure or um, fairy taleness or, um, you know, I just, or I know we're very big Shakespeare fans is kind of how some of them came in. So like Patrice Caldwell, Samantha Mabry. Um, so uh, yeah, it was sort of a mix of different things. Um, and some of those people have done short fiction really well before, and some of them I've never seen do short fiction and, and it'll be cool. There was also some people I chose because I thought I knew I really wanted some of it to go dark and I really wanted some people who were going to do really dark. So, you know, I had that faith in like Lindsay Smith and Kirsten White. Mm -hmm. um, I love Tochi Onyabuchi's fantasy and I'm going to read his sci-fi, which I'm excited about. And I, there were just people I thought would do really cool jobs mm -hmm. with, with what it is. So sorry, I can talk about this stuff forever, <laughs> as you can see. That is so, fine. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a cool process of putting that together. And um, I, I really hope it won't be the last. I have kind of floated more ideas, but um I have option clauses in each of these anthology contracts. So I kind of, I just have to like wait and then like take my turn. So when this next one is in, I can discuss another, but I can't talk to anybody else about any anthologies right now. And I have so many ideas I want to do. So that kind of kills me, but uh, publishing. Yeah. Right? Hurry up and wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Goodness. Yeah. It's uh, a lot. What do you think the key is for a great anthology? Like theme or participants or... All of it. I really all think of all of it has to come together. Um, I think theme can be a little less important than what people are going to bring to the table. But I think theme is what brings people to the collection in the first place, unless they really, really know your authors already. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's some anthologies where the lineup is so good that like, I don't care what the theme is. It might yeah. be cute, but like, oh, okay, you have, you know, insert five names here I'm obsessed with. Um, I'm down. Um, but but I think the best anthologies are where all that stuff really comes together because when you choose authors who are really well suited to the theme, mm -hmm. which is what I think and hope I did with His Hideous Heart and, and That Way Madness Lies, I think that makes for the best collections. And I mean, that's what I think, I hope. Yeah. But you know what? <laughs> who knows? Because like Three Sides of a Heart, for example, I can't, that's um, edited by Natalie Parker and that's oh all God, yeah. love yep. triangles and whatever. Mm -hmm. And you know, Lamar Giles, who's in his hideous heart because he's a phenomenal thriller author, is like not somebody that I would have ever thought to pull in for something like that. And then I will never stop thinking about his story in that anthology. I think it's fantastic. The way that he's spun on that love triangle mm -hmm. aspect is brilliant. Go read it. Um, I will not spoil a thing here. But you know what? What do I know? Because that's, you know, an author that I clearly love and respect and would pull into an anthology because I did, but that's mm -hmm. not the premise I would have thought to put him on. And then he ended up doing a brilliant job with it. So when what now? <laughs> <laughs> you know a lot, clearly, but you know, <laughs> nobody knows I mean, everything. He, is, he has got to be one of YA's best short fiction authors. I mean, if he ever does his own short story book, I am there. His anthology contributions are unreal. Hmm. As long as I'm just randomly talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Is it really well, an interview with me if I don't try to sell you like 20 books in the process? <laughs> no, no, it's not. I would be very disappointed. Yeah. <laughs>
God, I'm a mess. Sorry. All of all of your favorite authors need to put you on some sort of like royalty. <laughs> we I give do Dahlia acknowledgments all the time. Give Dahlia commission. Commission. Yeah. The best thing you can do for me is um, name a character after me. So thankfully, a few people have done that, which I greatly appreciate. Fantastic. Zoraida Cordova just said that there's a character in her next Wayward Witch who's like this very minor character, but she's named Dahlia, spelled the Spanish way without an H. And I'm like, Okay, just so everybody knows, she's the hero of the book now. <laughs> <laughs> I am claiming her, she is mine, and she is me, yes, and you will love her. <laughs> well, Anna Marie McLemore did the same thing, Spanish spelled Dahlia in Wild Beauty, and she's the best book character of all time. So, I mean, I have no bias or anything, but I, I'm not saying she totally is. Of course. Yeah. I'll take that as my commission. Just name your characters after me. <laughs> Okay, so we are both survivors of a small press quasi-collapse. It's technically still there, but there was a growing pains to the nth degree, I guess, sort of period. Um, (laughs) So what do you think authors should keep in mind when signing with a small press? Or like, what are the warning signs to look out for um, if you have I guess like just don't do it is like a rude answer. Um, well, you know, because there the are some you make it. I was, I was really pro them once upon a time, yeah. as long as you were going in with your eyes open about the fact that, like, your advance is going to be much lower and things are just going to be a little messier and you're not going to be in a lot of bookstores if you're in any and you're not going to be in a lot of libraries if you're in any. I mean, baseline, baseline, even if you're with a good small press, you just kind of have to know that. It's like that's going to crush you and crush your spirit. Um, don't do it. You aren't going to get another chance with that book. It's not, I mean, almost never. I mean, Juliet Takes a Breath is like the first book I've seen kind of get yanked into the big pub world. Um, I'm sure it's happened to some others, but like that's the only one coming to mind for me. I mean, it's, it's really, if it's going to crush you not to see your book all over the place and not to be treated like authors at bigger publishers, just like, don't do it, shelve it, find another day. I don't know. Um, so that's, that's baseline going with your eyes open, but there's also indie publishers can collapse on a dime in a way that bigger publishers can't really, um, what happened with the small press that Erica and I are at is they just changed distributors and that was the beginning of the end. Like that's, that's what it was. I can't even tell you why necessarily, but, um, you know, everyone kind (laughs) of went for the rights back after that. And I didn't, they actually still have my books. But for example, the last event that I went to before his hideous heart, um, the bookstore was like, they wouldn't send us any copies of your books. And like, I never heard from them about it. I never heard they were asked. I don't know why that is. That's, you know, that can happen to you anywhere. It's more likely going to happen to you at a smaller publisher. Um, so I just like signed copies of an anthology I was in instead. Um, and that kind of stuff gets tough and that kind of stuff gets grating. Uh, there's nothing I can tell you is a definite good sign because even the ones that have good signs can just turn into something else one day. So the most important thing, and this is the most fatalistic thing I can say, but is is you got to know the exit options immediately. Um, so I do recommend having somebody look at your contract. can be a lawyer, can just be somebody with publishing contract expertise, can be an agent, of course. Um, at the very, very least, just have like an author friend with some knowledge, something 
but understand the exit terms, what it would take to get your rights back. If you're going to owe money to get your rights back, if I tried to buy my books back now um, and get the rights back, I think I would have to like buy out the stock or would all be pulped or something. They won't keep them in circulation. Like those details are really messy, messier than you know, messier than you can dream up on your own. Um, So you really, really have to understand what it means to leave, what it means about if you're giving up that book forever, if you leave, um, and what it means if you're giving up that book forever, if you go with them and they just suck. So it's really tough. I don't even want to make recommendations of them because if you look at this in five months and the books that I love, you know, the places that I think are doing a good job made one change had one, like a a single personnel change can be everything. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's it's really tricky. If I was going to say good things about one right now, it would be interlude, which is a queer press. I do a lot of work with for LGBTQ reads. Um, and I, you know, love doing publicity with them. And I've seen them at conferences, which is, oh yeah. Okay. Let's talk about positives. <laughs> so there's an example <laughs> of a positive. <laughs> um, they, they've had booths at conferences and they've had authors at conferences. Um, and they, at least publicity wise, seem to support their authors. They reach out to me for cover reveals or for excerpt reveals. Um, and the authors are certainly free to do things with me. I can see, um, they do actual events. So, you know, because they do Julian Winters, they do CB Lee, um, so they're really doing some great stuff. Uh, and that's, you know, those are kinds of things I would look to, but you know, anything, if you're wondering if, if bookstore presence matters to you, go see what indie, um, publishers have books on bookshelves. You know, some of the smaller mm-hmm. publishers have really big distributors. So like page street and, and I think entangled also is distributed by Macmillan, Macmillan. right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So like if your distributor is Macmillan, that's a really good thing if, you know, I mean, and then there's so many factors, there's contracts and how many people are working on your book. And if you can find out about how the people working on your book get paid, honestly, like, I know that sounds ick, but that tells you a lot about the uh, likely longevity of them staying there, mm-hmm. um, which is not a small thing. Um, no. <laughs> so yeah, you just, you got to figure out the things that are most important to you and then see how the publisher you're interested in does with that but you always have to look at the contracts no matter what like i don't care if bookstore presence is important to you and they have a good distributor look at the contract (laughs) that matters like i was just hearing today about somebody who got you know a very small advance for her book and that's fine but apparently there were no royalties in her contract so when her book actually grew up that didn't do anything for her that's horrible royalty free contract is not acceptable no, so, not unless it's a work for hire. And even then, it's yeah, kind of work like for if, hire is a different situation. Like, but, but um, yeah, no, that was that was a very sad and terrible thing to oh, hear about. So sucks. yeah. Uh yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I mean, my my two books are still with that first press, and the rest of that series will never see the light of day. And I've actually gotten two questions in the past week about when the third book is coming out. And I'm mm, like, I'm no. sorry. I know I have the first Never. Book. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Please don't hate me. <laughs> um, it's yeah. written. It's sitting in my computer right now. I don't know if that makes it better or worse, but it's, I know. yeah, I, I I'm, I'm stopped. The, the book I thought was going to be, I still have technically one book on an open contract there, but I mean, it's, it's no, expired. I closed now out, I closed out my contract. Um, but, I didn't, um, didn't pull rights for the first two, but I closed out the contract. Yeah. So it's, um, 
yeah it's hard I have that whole book on my hard drive and I love it it's like it was the very first book of my heart and I like will it ever see the light of day now maybe someday I'll like self-publish it I don't really know what else to do with it but yeah I think if if anything that's pretty much my only option with that Mm -hmm. because it's the third of a series that was with a small press and didn't do anything so like what are my other options nothing I that is my only choice so but I mean I will say I do still get royalties from behind the scenes under the lights and just visiting. So in that way, first of all, thank you everybody who's still buying those books five years later, six years later in the case of behind the scenes. Um, that's, or I guess next year will be six years. God, I am bad at math. Don't tell my job. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I'm very no, grateful we, for that. And our books what? came out the same year, right? Yeah. So that would have, yeah. So yeah. six. Yeah. Oh my God. Next year is six years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's been a while. It's wild. It, uh, that is how long I've known you then. <laughs> yeah. I probably since before our books came out now. Yeah. 2013 with all the, the, the pub. Yeah. The, all yeah. the lead ups and stuff. Yep. Yeah. Uh, think that. <laughs> yeah. No, so, I still remember the day you added me to the not a catfish list. It was very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite thing in the world. Um, but, but I would have had much, I mean, I had much, much better things to say about it. I mean, we signed at BEA, we were in bookstores and in libraries and still you can occasionally find them libraries, but occasionally, yeah, I just, there's, you have to go in with like three eyes wide open. Yeah. And expect collapse at any moment. (laughs) Yeah. And be prepared and know your path if there's collapse at any moment. And Mm -hmm. a book that you cannot bear to have collapse is maybe not best (laughs) i don't know i don't know i hate sounding like terribly fatalistic because i don't like for all this i don't have regrets that i did it like Mm -hmm. what would my career have like i've I've had a career for the past five years and i wouldn't have without that like because my career for like two or three years was before it was self-pub and short stories who would have bought my self-pub books if they didn't know me from other books who would have bought who would have brought me into anthologies if they didn't know me from other books um and then would I have gotten to edit my own anthology in 2019? I don't know. Would I have sold a novel? Like, again yeah. and again and again. So, you know, there's mm-hmm. so much I learned from publishing, period, that has factored into what, you know, my career as it is now, which hopefully I won't have any reason to regret in the same way. <laughs> um, you know, now all big publishers, that's all nice and everything. Um so it's it's hard to be like fully fully down on the experience it's just there's so many things you can't even imagine to be prepared for and yeah. that i think yeah. is the really hard part that i just want yeah, people to absolutely. know absolutely absolutely yeah. yeah i was i was with a, a very small press that collapsed and like it, it was messier it was like the owner sold the company to a person that didn't exist like it was a stock photo oh, no. yeah it was great um, <laughs> I can't that, remember the name of yours, but I I think I like was just talking to somebody else who was at was it. Entranced. Yes, I was. Yeah. Just, I have a coworker who was also published with Entranced, also 2014. And yeah. she mentioned it, and I was like, "Oh my god, I haven't thought of them in years." But I yeah. never knew what happened to them. It was just like a romance novelette, so it, like it didn't bother me that much. But um, some people had like series with them and stuff, so it's really rough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ebony said. This is good stuff. <laughs> Learning it's so much. Stuff. I'm yeah. sorry, it's depressing. It's stuff. good to learn though. Yeah. yeah, that's that's how I feel about everything. Like 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember an early, uh, I, God, it was in, in one of my first events, like on my first official post pub, like month of publication event, I ended up at the bar with some authors and like they're going on about all of this stuff. And they're just like, oh no, we're ruining her new author glow. Yeah. And I was like, no, no, tell me all of the things I need authors to know what to look out for. are like a force to be reckoned with. Everybody <laughs> like, I love it. To, like, oh, but I mean, but no seriously, they were they just are, going on about all of this gossip at the time, you know, yeah. back in 2014. And I was just like, no, no, seriously, tell me all of the things. Right. Like, give me all of the details. I Knowledge need to, what power, to watch out I'm for. Exactly. A family of educators, all, you know, it's what we do. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's really important to know what you're getting into and, you know, look positive and all of that, but don't back yeah. yourself into a corner accidentally with optimism. Yeah. Um, which I think I have done at least once in my life. So, you know, it I happens. Mean, haven't we all? <laughs> yeah. Haven't we all? Yeah. All right. We have one more question for you before we're going to let okay. you go. Um, I prepared you for this one, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, what is, and I ask this of every guest, by the way, um, what is the most important book you've ever read for whatever reason? There's no way in hell I'm narrowing it down to one. Um, this is okay so I did think about it um I am going to go with um sloppy firsts by Megan McCafferty because I think that was the first voice I ever read that sounded like me mm -hmm. that sounded kind of like the inside of my head that felt like a character like me and I you know I grew up how I grew up. So I, I mean, that character is not modern Orthodox Jewish, but that's how I grew up. So already I'm not seeing myself in any books. Like that's just not a thing you expect to see your teen years. That's not, you know, ever, ever. So I didn't realize there was a way I could see myself in books without seeing that part. Um, but I guess also I was like 25 when I read it. So, you know, I'm no longer going to like yeshiva like i'm having you know more normal life like everybody else but it was like oh there is a place for characters who sound like me so maybe there's a place for characters who just are like me you know maybe the way i write has a place because i grew up on like sweet valley high and babysitters mm -hmm. club and they had such like they weren't like me at all they didn't sound like me they didn't feel like me they didn't make choice when i say like me i mean like make choices like me or have neuroses like me or make mistakes and have flaws in the same kind of way that I did. Not like Elizabeth, why are you getting into the trunk of that car? Um, <laughs> but I mean, just like the basic stupid human things and that the, that character just felt so real and like a person. And I think it convinced me that the characters that I write that kind of had me in them and sounded like me and whatever were viable for publication in a way. Um, I don't know if it's related to it being why I kind of, it. when I read that is also the same phase of life in which I finally started querying and was like, I'm gonna start sharing my work now and trying to get published and not be terrified of people reading it. Um, I've never actually like made that connection if, if there really is a connection there. Um, but I like to think maybe, I just, I feel like it did a lot for me in terms of feeling like I was a viable character. Nice. Yeah. So that's definitely that an important. Cool. It would take a very long time till I read a uh, a story with an actual modern Orthodox Jewish team. So thank you, Suri Rosen, for playing with matches. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm gonna nice. go with that. 
Do you like how she still managed to throw in a second book? Yeah. <laughs> Good, job. Good job. And I didn't even say my other thought, which was Cracked Up to Be by Courtney Summers, or my um, favorite book as a kid, which was A True Dress in Brooklyn <laughs> by Betty Smith, or Outrun the Moon by Stacey Lee, which, like, yeah, you didn't mention those at all. To give me the vibe of my love for A True Dress in Brooklyn. Do you see how controlled I was? <laughs> we do now, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, well, Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We're going to. Thank you um, for having me. Yeah. We're going to let you sign off and, and finish a couple things up. Um, right. And you can find information about Dahlia in the description now um, and also later. So, yeah. All right. Thank you. Good night. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Bye. Ooh. I cut her off right before she was saying something. <laughs> was... It was just bye. I think we're okay. <laughs> okay. Um, she was probably like telling us to read another book. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, no, that would make sense. Hey, um, so Dolly, just, I know you're still listening. If you, um, you can close the window if you want, or you can just keep listening to us and we'll talk to you at the end, whatever you want to do. Um, all right. That was great. Wasn't that good? It was. Yeah, we yeah. Are. absolutely. She's always a delight to talk to. So yeah, it's great when I get to speak to her actually in person, live, and not on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mainly on Twitter and uh, a group. Oh, she said she was oh. going to say congrats on the new release. Oh, <laughs> oh thank you, Dahlia. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm excited about it. That cover is freaking gorgeous. I'm yeah. really happy with my publisher for that cover because good lord did they listen to me on that one okay. um, it was, <laughs> I was stunned when I saw it for the first time I was awesome. really really happy alright so uh, it is time for audiobook of the week which is a, a segment that I wanted to do because I love audiobooks and it's my show so I can do what I want <laughs> <laughs> um, so the audiobook for this week is Natalie Tan's Book of Luck and Fortune by Roselle Lem uh, the publisher says, quote, lush and visual, chock full of delicious recipes. Roselle Lim's magical debut is novel is about food, heritage, and finding family in the most unexpected places. It's narrated by Catherine Ho, who is new to me, but she narrates a lot of books that are on my TBR list. So I look forward to listening to those because she was a delight to listen to. Um, and if you're a fan of magic woven into every day, and also food descriptions that will literally make you drool on your own shirt. Uh, you should definitely check it out. I, yeah, I was so hungry listening to this book and I'm sorry you're gonna eat more when you're listening to this because, okay. yeah. Um, but in June it was optioned for a TV show. So I hope that materializes soon and because then I get to see the food too. <laughs> Clearly, all about the food. Yeah. Does anything well, who, like what is this book actually about? <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, so it's about a girl who um, she moves back to the town she grew up in, the area she grew up in, the neighborhood, um, after her mother dies, and um, there is a restaurant that was owned by her grandmother, and she decides to like spruce it up and um, and kind of help revitalize the neighborhood because it was, it was a restaurant that brought a whole bunch of people into the neighborhood when she was younger, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of like magical realism and she, she cooks these recipes and it, it affects the people around her very much like, like water for chocolate. Um, or gosh, what was that really corny movie with Sarah Michelle Geller? 
Oh, my God. It was it was exactly that. She took over her mother's restaurant and mm. she couldn't cook to save her own life. But then all of a sudden there was this magic crab. Uh, oh no. <laughs> magic crab. Um, it was it was really cute. But oh, my God, cheesy as all get out. But yeah, yeah. all of her emotions were fed into the food. And if you ate the food, you would be sad or happy or angry yeah. or whatever and it was um, a very cutesy rom-com but uh yeah no that's that's adorable sounds totally up my alley <laughs> yeah um yeah she's the the main character she's actually a cook and she moved away to like pursue her career um but then she finds she gets her grandmother's old recipe book and these these are the recipes that are like impacting people um mm -hmm. in different ways and it's just beautiful and um sad and unhappy at the same time which is like everything <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know right. yeah uh, and there is a romance it's not a main main plot point though but um there's oh, a romance right. in it too so all like kinds that. of stuff yeah all right so it's time to discuss um today's viewer poll and so i'm gonna just gonna put up my um twitter poll on the screen right now oh i gotta take that off one second okay um, so I asked this, uh, what do you most often prefer to listen to when you write? 33% people said music with lyrics, 29% people said instrumental music, 24% uh, said silence, and 14% <laughs> said ambient sounds slash noise. What do you listen to when you write, Erica? Depends on the day, but I was definitely in the ambient sound slash noise. Uh, I do my best work coffee shops um, in the office during break times when there's other people around and so therefore procrastination is not a good thing because there's that like faint level of peer pressure um, yeah that's that's usually where I'm the most productive if I'm home then there's all of these nice books and like chairs <laughs> to distract me and keep me from writing yeah um, I also grew up in musical theater and dance so like music with lyrics is like something to sing to and therefore distracts me from what I should actually be like typing into my computer <laughs> <laughs> yeah I try um, not, oh, Ebony said, Sarah, you're a total foodie. I am. Yes. <laughs> if you go to my Instagram, you will know, like, just go to my Instagram. I cook all the time. So like that, I was just like, oh yeah, I could make dumplings. Like dumplings are not a thing I've ever made in my life, but, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, I got distracted of course. Okay. Yeah. So I, <laughs> I try not to, um, depend on any one thing because I, I have, because of like some elements of my personality, I have a little bit of an obsessive personality. And so if I decide that I write when I listen to classical music or whatever, if I'm in a situation where I can't, then it would, it would lead me to not being able to write unless like those conditions were perfect. So I try really hard to like switch it up and make sure I'm not like depending on any one thing. Um, but I do, I, I used to write with, I, when I had cable television, I would turn on, you know, whatever channel Law & Order was just on 24-7. <laughs> and I would turn that on and then I would also turn music on because just like the kind of, I couldn't focus on one competing, thing. Yeah, competing noise. But then I also didn't hear like random noises in the street or whatever that would distract me. Um, <laughs> Bess. So Bess is one of the people that I actually write with. 
She said, Sarah wants how to do a write-in, listening to Chap Hop for three hours. I don't even know what Chap Hop is, but Bess always plays music <laughs> whenever we're together. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, it changes. There are definitely some days where I, if, even if I am out somewhere, I need to put in and I'll put in music of some sort. Um, usually though, that's like, I love listening to Philip Glass's soundtrack for the Hours movie. That is a gorgeous, like 52 minutes of piano and violin and cello and it's engaging enough to keep me alert um, but not distracting um, and there's other quietly classical music like that that I will sometimes listen to but then I also marathon Criminal Minds in the background <laughs> so that's so funny because Ebony said I do my best writing watching but not watching reruns of Castle. We all watch like law movies. <laughs> well, shows. I that would make sense though because you know it's a story about a writer. So I get that one. No, I um Criminal Minds. I I tend to because I've seen it enough that I can ignore it. Um, mm. And or like other movies, big disaster movies, Day After Tomorrow, stuff like that, where it's like those ridiculous ones where you can watch for five minutes and not need to know what's going on, like. Um, I'll put that on sometimes in the background for the, that sort of conversation elements, um, but definitely yeah. not silence. I, I, if it's too quiet, I tend to distract myself. Yeah. Lately I've been listening, I've been using ambient mixer a lot. Um, yeah. if you Google ambient mixer, it's got all different kinds of sounds and you can like adjust the elements in them too. Mm -hmm. Um, but like the the time when I really need it is if I'm out in public writing and someone near me is having like a really distracting conversation. <laughs> no, that's so the time you grab your phone and start tweeting. <laughs> like the play Do by that play. too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but I I try I try to be as flexible as I can with my writing habits so that I don't get stuck in in mm -hmm. one rut. That's fair. But yeah, because if I get stuck in a rut, I burn out on that rut and then I can't write like that again mm. for a while. So I, yeah, yeah, no, I feel you. All right. So today's um, quote of the week is actually two different related quotes of the week. And the first one is um, Mark Twain, classic, a book which people praise and don't read, which is just hilarious considering Mark Twain is <laughs> considered. You know, he's classic now. And then the other one is a classic is a book that has never finished saying what it has to say. So I feel like these are kind of like conflicting. Maybe not. I mean, people could not read them and they still can't <laughs> be done saying what they need to say. Or it could be saying that the book itself literally never got to the point. <laughs> I didn't read it that way, but that's that hilarious. was how I read it the first time. When I first, when I the first time I read it, uh, that's that's how I read it. Was the book never actually got to the point? Um, yeah. I I interpret it as like people keep um, mining things from it. Like people keep getting things out of it. That's you know? true of a book that never actually got to the point. Yeah, <laughs> those two are not mutually exclusive. Um, yeah, which might be what he's trying to say. So. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought it was funny. Like I, when I was looking for quotes, I found those two really close to each other. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is, this is funny. It seems like they're arguing each, at each other, like over however long ago they both lived. Yeah. Right. 
All right. So we went a little long today, but that is not surprising because Erica and I, whenever we get together, we'll just yeah. talk forever until someone falls asleep. So, um, <laughs> yeah. no surprise there. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Erica, for joining me. Um, if you want to find more information about Erica, there are links down below. Um, and also go check out her newest novel, Pax Novus. Thank you so much yeah. for having me. It was a blast. Anytime. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to um, take you off the screen while I do the final closing words and uh, I'll talk to you later. Bye. All right. Thank you so much for everyone who tuned in um, and everyone who's going to be watching the replay as well. If you enjoyed this show, don't forget to like and subscribe. Like and subscribe um, so you don't miss another episode. And also tell your friends because that is how people find out about shows like this. Um, if you want to subscribe to receive email reminders the day of the show, and you can also sign up to receive um, a summary a couple of days after the show as well. And that will include all the links, but the links will be added to the description later tonight. Um, and then finally, uh, thank you so much to the people who su support me on Patreon. You're going to see their names in the outro, but if you're interested in supporting the show on Patreon, there's going to be a link in the description down below for that as well. And I've mentioned several times before, but I just want to make sure y'all go Thank you so much for listening to this pre-recorded episode of Pub Talk Live. To find out more about the show and to find out how you can watch live, go to pubtalk.live. Thank you so much to my Patreon podcast sponsors, Brenda Drake and Jay Lynn.